Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our fifth episode in the Forensic Psychology series. Last uh, episode, we talked a little bit about polygraph machines and the challenges inherent with the technology. We also considered other factors related to deception and malingering and discussed their importance and impact on policing and investigations generally. This episode's focus will be on eyewitness testimony. It is one of the oldest and most widely studied topics in forensic psychology. It's also considered to be one of the most compelling types of evidence that the police and the courts rely on. So a large part of eyewitness testimony relies on memory. However, memory is not infallible and is subject to many factors that can influence accuracy. The human brain is not a mechanical structure and can produce, you know, that can produce perfectly reliable recall, especially since the process of, men of memory solidification is imperfect and inconsistently influenced or conditioned. Generally speaking, we receive information via our senses, right? So sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste. However, any impairment to the quality or the quantity of information received will impact how that information is interpreted. Consider a diminished ability to see or hear based on personal or even environmental factors, right? Like tunnel vision or auditory exclusion. The information we receive is stored and then usually compared against our existing frames of reference so that we can interpret whatever it is that we've encountered, right? So this is not a perfect process and prior conditioning can definitely influence your interpretation. So if you factor in any impairment to our receiving um, inputs from any of our senses, you can see how the memory information that we're working with that we need to interpret would be skewed right out the gate. And that, in many ways, could even influence the way we remember it after the fact. Information generally moves through your short-term and long-term memory, depending on the type of information you're taking in. So some information is lost in that transfer, or, you know, over time it's degraded. Now, there are many factors that influence and affect memory, uh, and some of those include inattention, so not actually paying attention to the environment. Uh, when, th when things are unexpected, so unexpectedness, the amount of time available to view the environment. Or, and here's the interesting one that we've talked about in, in previous episodes, hearing other people describe the same event or the same environment. And that has a way of influencing the way we think about, you know, the incidences that we are encountering. In some ways, you can almost implant memories, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, by listening to other people. And where we're not paying attention or we're not expecting to be dialed in or we're hearing other people talk about it, we can sometimes incorporate that into our own memories and not even realize that we're doing that. Now, the way police or an investigator questions um, you know, a person or the way they frame a question, that can influence the way you remember something. The amount of time that has gone by between the event and the need to recall 
So consider if I asked you, can you tell me what you were doing on the second Tuesday of May in the year 2020? That might be harder for you to recall because it might not be connected to any specific thing, right? So it's really important to understand that time lapse can also change uh, the way we remember things, right? And we have a tendency to fill in the blanks for ourselves when we don't remember perfectly what had happened in the past, right? We try to create a coherent story, if you will. So the impact of all these factors result sometimes in embellishment, falsification, and even I'd go so far as to say fabrication, right? Not all of it is intentional or willful or even malicious for that matter. It's just the brain is an imperfect, um, you know, it's an imperfect thing. And the process around remembering is equally imper imperfect. So you can think of different ways that we can talk about memory, right? So recall memory is when you're asked to report details of a previously witnessed event or a person. The primary goal for an officer interviewing an eyewitness is, you know, is to really extract from that witness a complete and accurate report of what happened. If inaccurate information is supplied, an officer may pursue innocent suspects. So thus reducing the likelihood that the guilty person will actually even get caught. So, you know, that getting someone to accurately recall, accurately remember, uh, is critical to the investigative process. Then you have things like recognition memory, right? Determining whether a previously seen item or a person is the same as what is currently being viewed. So that could be like a lineup or it could be a photo array or it's where you're being asked what clothing somebody was wearing um, and if this shirt looked like the one worn by the suspect it's asking you to make a connection between an item that you've seen before uh, and something that you're being shown and then of course there's open-ended recall which is part of that interviewing process so a witness uh, gets asked to either write or orally state all that they can remember about an event Right. And generally, when they do that, the officer does not ask any questions. Right. It's it's called a free narrative. Basically, we're asking somebody to record and remember everything that they can. And the idea there is that we don't taint or limit what it is they're focused in on. And hopefully you get a richer, more accurate information as part of that process. Now, a direct question recall is where witnesses are asked a series of very specific questions about a crime or the culprit. And that's hoping to get to the, you know, the nitty gritty, the detail, if you will. And then, like I mentioned earlier, a lineup is another way to use uh, recall in, in sort of that investigative process. And a lineup is a set of people presented to the witness, right? So the witness has to look at the people, generally anonymously, uh, who in turn must, you know, the witness must then point out who they think the culprit is or uh, whether the culprit is present and if so, which one, you know, it is from the people in the lineup. Those are all elements of memory and how memory and recall are drawn into the investigative process. So given that we generally consider eyewitness testimony to be one of the most compelling types of evidence and we know that it influences both investigations and courts tremendously, it is a worthwhile endeavor to ask and consider how reliable eyewitness testimony really is, because if it forms a large part of our system of determining guilt, then one has to question whether or not eyewitness testimony that relies on memory 
is a sound and reliable means of investigating. So given the importance of eyewitness testimony, it's worth exploring how the interviewing process or the process of interviewing eyewitnesses makes a major impact on the case itself. So the accuracy of eyewitness recall can be significantly impacted by the way a police investigation is conducted in the first place. Now researchers have found that police officers tend to follow an interview format that, that looks a little like this. Right? So they open with an introduction, they ask eyewitnesses to report what they remember using an open-ended format, right? uh, trying to get them to speak freely in, in a free-flowing narrative. And then they follow that by a series of direct questions to determine specific information. Right? So this is the narrowing down from the wide to a more specific sort of investigative area of focus. The interview usually ends with an open-ended segment looking for any additional information that may have been left out of the interview up to that point. And we know that open-ended questions have a way of eliciting more information than close-ended yes or no answers. Right? Now, researchers found also, though, that there are several challenges with the way police uh, conduct interviews. So they often interrupted, uh, like when they've done the research, they've noticed that police officers often interrupt eyewitnesses when they're providing an open-ended recall report. And I think that's human nature, right? So the more somebody speaks, we often have to develop this ability to be quiet, actively listen, and pay attention without sort of either formulating our next question, formulating our response, or developing our opinion while they're still speaking, right? We've seen tremendous examples of this, uh, you know, excellent examples of this, very, very skilled uh, investigators and interviewers have a, ma a way of being very patient. And patience plays a very big role because when you're not patient, you have a tendency to interrupt. Now, police question witnesses with, uh, you know, very short, specific questions, and this can be a problem as well, right? Like I said earlier, open-ended questions give you a little bit more room to explore what somebody remembers or how they've seen a circumstance. Close-ended questions or very short or very specific questions have a tendency to narrow the answers that you're being provided. It also really changes the emphasis of what someone focuses in on, right? So the officers may ask or they may not ask relevant questions rather, and that can influence the type of information they receive. So you think about, uh, you know, interviewing somebody or talking to somebody where you're trying to get to information and they're asking you a lot of things that seem completely disconnected from the conversation at hand. Think about how that can derail your thinking process, right? Now, Im imagine what that would do in an eye to an eyewitness if they're being asked a whole bunch of, you know, irrelevant questions. We also know that they tend to ask questions in a predetermined, um, you know, way that's inconsistent with the information that witnesses were providing at the time. And this is a little bit problematic because memory recall can be messy, Right, And this idea that people remember everything in a perfect chronological sequence is a myth because more often than not, memories do tend to be a little jumbled, especially the more traumatic or the more unusual the circumstance might be. Now, think about last, you know, last episode when we were talking about people who are telling the truth have a tendency to self-correct, to correct on the fly because 
they recognize the fallibility of their memory, right? Or the other thing researchers found lastly was that officers tend to ask questions that are leading or suggestive. And this can be extremely dangerous, right? So think back to the, to the episode we did about uh, interviewing and in, interrogations. And you realize very quickly that leading or suggestive questions can be very dangerous because what they can do is actually change the answer that you're receiving. They can actually change the way somebody recalls and remembers an incident. Suggestion, depending on who you're speaking to, can have a major influence in the way somebody reports back what has happened. All of these findings tell us very clearly that we should be thinking long and hard about how we conduct investigations, how we conduct interrogations, because memory is a fickle thing. And the manner in which we conduct those sessions, those interviews, can have a tremendous influence on the overall investigation. The misinformation effect. So Elizabeth Loftus is one of the most prominent researchers in the area of uh, leading questions. She has conducted many experiments demonstrating that witnesses' recall report can be altered by the phrasing of a question. Loftus went on to demonstrate that simply introducing an inaccurate detail to witnesses could lead them to report that inaccurate detail when questioned later. So the misinformation effect, also called the post-event information effect, is a phenomenon in which a witness who is presented with inaccurate information after an event will incorporate that misinformation in a subsequent recall task. And the way you'd break it down is, you know, there's the misinformation acceptance hypothesis, right? And the, the explanation for the misinformation effect where the incorrect information is provided because the witness guesses what the officer wants the response to be, right? So that's misinformation that is seeking acceptance. And the other one is source misattribution hypothesis. That's uh, an explanation for the misinformation effect where the witness has two memories, the original and the misinformation. However, the witness cannot remember where each memory originated or the source of each. And you can see how quickly that can lead to a problem. And then the third hypothesis we might look at to explain the misinformation effect would be the memory impairment hypothesis. So explanation for the misinformation effect where the original memory is replaced with the new incorrect information. Now, regardless of which hypothesis is accepted, the one consistent fact is that the information effect happens and it is a real phenomenon, right? Now, contributing factors include, you know, officers inadvertently phrasing a question consistent with their own assumptions or a witness overhearing, you know, multiple witnesses overhearing each other's statements. Or this is also true for witnesses that overhear uh, an account from someone else that perhaps is not being interviewed. And arguably, that might be even more complicated to discern later, right? Police officers might, uh, you know, incorporate or add in an erroneous detail from a previous witness interview, and then that becomes part of the new narrative that somebody's recalling and remembering.
right? And all of those factors can can influence the way information is processed, the way it is recalled, and then obviously the way it is retold. So for our purposes, I'll stop there. It was meant to give you a quick synopsis of Elizabeth Loftus and the work that she's done. Uh, highly recommend reading her work. Uh, she has a great TED Talk out there, and she's obviously written books, and uh, her published uh, research findings are available, especially for those of you that are in college and have access to uh, journals. So I'd strongly recommend you look at that. I think that understanding her findings is tremendously helpful to law enforcement because it gives us a sense of some of the ways in which we can corrupt people's memories um, and then some of the ways in which it's naturally corrupted that we should be mindful of when we're taking witness uh, testimony. So one procedure that uh, helps police interview eyewitnesses is hypnosis. So hypnotically refreshed memory is one where a hypnotized person is able to produce a greater number of details than a person who has not been hypnotized, right? So approximately 10% of the population cannot be hypnotized at all. Approximately 5% to 10% are highly suggestible. And the ability to be hypnotized sort of peaks in late childhood. So some things to remember when you think about it. It's definitely not a foolproof strategy, right? A variety of factors can also influence whether hypnosis can be induced. So the degree of trust the witness places in the, hypno, uh, in the hypnotist, right? That's a factor. The witness's willingness to be hypnotized, that's, that's a critical element. The witness's belief in hypnosis, um, you know, that, that makes a big difference because if you're completely resistant, likely that, you know, the likelihood that you can actually be hypnotized is pretty low. And the seriousness of the context for being hypnotized are all factors that influence uh, whether or not hypnosis could actually even be induced in the first place. Now, if you are going to be hypnotized, there's usually two techniques that are often used in hypnosis. So the first one is called age regression, right? And with age regression, the witness goes back in time and re-experiences the original event which is different than the second one, which is called television technique. With the television technique, the witness imagines that he or she is watching an imaginary television screen, right, with the event being played on it, um, that they are sort of watching again. And that's what they're recalling and they're recounting to the hypno, uh, you know, during hypnosis. So researchers found that while individuals under hypnosis will provide more details, um, those details are just as likely to be inaccurate um, as accurate, right? The hypnotized individual seems to be more suggestible, uh, is what research finds, to subtle cues by the interviewer than under normal conditions. So it puts some emphasis in making sure that you're not leading somebody down uh, the wrong road, right? The Canadian courts are aware of the difficulties with uh, hypnotically induced recall, and typically they do not permit the use of information gained that way. A cognitive interview is a procedure that helps with the recollection of memories regarding a crime. 
It is a method used by law enforcement to help victims or eyewitnesses recall specific memories from a crime scene. Right. So the aim of these interviews is to help investigators find out and evaluate what happened uh, and sort of go through it in very, very minute detail. So we'll go through it on a step-by-step basis almost. And keep in mind that things that people witness, um, whether they are a victim or they are an eyewitness, usually happens fairly quickly. And they happen for short durations of time. So it's kind of... People need to be able to access their short-term memory, and they need to be able to keep it all in track. This is not even talking about the impacts of trauma or high levels of stress that occurs during you know, um, a critical incident. So the cognitive interview was developed as an alternative to the standard interview that police did. And they realized that there was gaps in the way interviews were being uh, conducted. So... The cognitive interview takes into account psychological findings about, uh, you know, cue-dependent forgetting. Um, And it has four stages that are all designed to stimulate as many cues as possible in order to maximize different retrieval routes, right? So stage one, it's reinstating the context. Stage two would be recall events in reverse order. Stage three, it would be to report everything that they can possibly remember. And then stage four is to describe events from someone else's point of view. So it's built off this idea that our memories are made up of a network of associations. And they're not sort of, you know, perfectly, they don't lay out perfectly in our brains, right? The interviewer tries to mentally reinstate the environment and the personal context of the crime for the witness. Perhaps they ask them uh, about their general activities and feelings that day. This could include, you know, the things they saw, smelt, felt, the emotions, the weather. They're trying to basically create, recreate that event um, in the mind of the witness, but in a safer space, right? So the witnesses are often asked to use all of their senses in the recollection of the event. And this can help sort of with the recreation in their mind, and it may help trigger some recall that is context-dependent. So that was stage one, right? Reinstating the context, and they're trying to bring that situation back to life. If you look at stage two, which is this idea of reporting every single thing, the thinking on that is very simple. Witnesses, when asked to report every detail that they could possibly remember, no matter how big or how trivial it was, it is a way of getting... um, the details, even unimportant ones perhaps, to trigger um, a memory for key information, right? So it might act uh, it might act to help them complete the picture. And sometimes thinking about even things that are seemingly unimportant would have the effect of giving a little bit more clarity to all of the thoughts, right? So if you if you think about reporting everything from that perspective, then you can see how that you know has an influence. When asked to uh, sort of change the perspective, sometimes they are asked to reverse the order. So witnesses are asked to report the incident from different perspectives, describing what they think other witnesses or even the criminals themselves might have seen. And all of this helps with sort of establishing, you know, perspective and positionality, if you will, on the recall, right? So they might recount the incident in a different narrative order, right? And they and there was this uh, the researchers the people that produced the uh, cognitive interview Gieselman and Fisher uh, in 1985 
proposed that due to the re- recent, uh, you know, the recency effect, people tend to recall more recent events more clearly than others. So witnesses should be encouraged to work backwards from the end to the beginning because the things at the end would be more, you know, more fresh in their minds, if you, you know, so to speak. When events are recalled in forward order, witnesses reconstruct based on their schema, which means basically that there's a higher likelihood of distortions when they're going when they're trying to go chronologically, right? So in many ways it's actually better to ask it in reverse. So just so you're on the same page, uh, as I mentioned very briefly there, the research that supported this was done in 1985 by Gieselman and company. And, uh, you know, they what they found was the average number of correct recalled facts for the cognitive interview was higher than both for hypnosis and the standard police interview. And so the conclusion was basically that the cognitive interview led to better memory for events with witnesses able to recall more relevant information. Um, and it produced greater amounts of accurate information without an increase in inaccurate details, right? Especially when compared to the what it with the uh, standard police interview that it was trying to replace. As a variation thereof, the police might even use an enhanced cognitive interview. So that's an interview procedure that includes various principles of social dynamics in addition to the memory retrieval principles that was used in the original cognitive interview that we just spoke about, right? So the additional components would include rapport building, right? The goal to sort of establish, if you will, rapport with the witnesses to make them feel more comfortable and more supported creating the environment in which people would have uh, an easier time remembering things, right? So supportive interviewer behavior, where a witness's free recall does not get interrupted and pauses uh, should be waited out by the interviewer, right? Or the interrogator, whichever way you want to call that. Um, The point is the same one we were making earlier. There's benefit in being patient and letting people work through their thoughts without rushing or interrupting them. Transferring control, uh, another feature of the enhanced cognitive interview. The witness, not the officer, should control the flow of the interview, meaning we're giving them room to arrive at the conclusions, to remember freely without creating undue barriers, right? And then obviously, as we alluded to earlier, questions in the enhanced uh, cognitive interview generally are open-ended and they're not leading or suggestive, which gives an opportunity for focused retrieval, right? And then finally, there is a way that officers can question a witness uh, that matches the witness's style of thinking. And this might help a witness stay on topic, right? So there is some onus on the police to be very, very clear about how and why they're asking the questions in the manner that they are. And it puts an emphasis on the interrogator or the investigator to seek out and draw the most accurate information they can during that process. Now, although some officers in Canada have been trained to conduct cognitive interviews, some are reluctant to use it. They state it requires too much time to conduct and it takes a a fair fair bit of of training. So those were some of the methods that police utilize to get to the best information. In our next segment, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about false memory syndrome.
False memory syndrome is the term used to describe false beliefs about past occurrences for which the person has no memory until they enter therapy to deal with some other psychological problem such as depression or substance abuse. False memory syndrome is caused by memories of a traumatic episode, most commonly childhood sexual abuse, which are objectively false, but in which the person strongly believes. These usually, as I mentioned, arise in the context of adult psychotherapy and are often quite vivid and emotionally charged. It is fairly rare and is often confused with other psychotic disorders uh, and malingering, which we had discussed in the previous episode. There are five criteria to consider when determining the veracity of a recovered memory. So the first would be age of the complainant at the time of the alleged incident. It is highly unlikely that anyone would have a memory prior to the age of two. Techniques used to recover the memory would be a second criteria. So techniques such as hypnosis and guided imagery heighten suggestibility and encourage fantasy, right? The third one would be, do the reports become increasingly more fantastic uh, or are they similar, right? So similarity of reports other across interview sessions, you're looking for consistency there. Motivation for recall is the person experiencing other psychological distress and want an answer to explain such feelings. And finally, time lapsed since the alleged incident. It may be more difficult to recall incidents that occurred 25 years ago than two years ago. And then finally, quantity and accuracy of descriptions. Witnesses to real crimes report significantly fewer descriptions than those in lab experimentation settings. So there's a few factors that you know one can look at to determine the veracity of any claim. Uh, and the idea is not to compromise or not believe people that are providing testimony. The, the point at hand is to make sure that we are being judicious in our approach and scientific in our uh, you know understanding that memories can be distorted. Recognition memory, for example, involves determining whether a previously seen item or person is uh, the one that is currently being viewed. Right. So, witness for a witness, uh, recognition memory can be tested in a number of ways: live lineups of um, photo arrays, video surveillance records, voice identification. And a critical distinction needs to be made between the terms suspect and culprit. Right. And this will have a really big uh, sort of point when you are considering a lineup and the psychological impact of what you refer to people as. So remember we had that earlier in this episode, we talked about leading or suggesting uh, a certain scenario that changes the context. So to make a, a clear distinction, a suspect is a person the police suspect committed the crime, who may be guilty or innocent of the crime in question. A culprit is the guilty person who committed the crime. So depending on the language you use, it might completely change the way somebody remembers something. So whenever they're doing uh, lineups, they also use foils or distractors. That's people placed in the lineup known to be innocent of the crime in question. And some of the other ways that you might look at it is, or look to sort of settle that out in terms of uh, you know testing recognition memory is a similarity to suspect strategy. So that matches lineup members to the suspect's appearance. Or you might do a match to description strategy. 
it sets to limit you know it sets limits on the number of features that need to be matched um, and then of course there's what we call a, a fair lineup is one in which the suspect does not stand out from the other lineup members I mean there should be some overlap so that you know people truly um, are measuring and trying to uh, identify the suspect in question some characteristics such as sex and race known as default values should be matched even if not mentioned in the witness description right so the target present lineup then would be a lineup that contains the culprit the only correct decision with the target present lineup is to make a correct identification conversely the target absent lineup is a lineup that does not contain the culprit but contains innocent suspects the only correct decision with the target absent lineup is to make a correct rejection. Now, false identifications, which could be the most serious type of identification error a witness could make, uh, happen sometimes because it can lead, uh, you know, somebody might be confused about something, but it can lead to a wrongful conviction and result in an actual culprit remaining at large. It's for this reason that the setup of the lineup and the manner in which the witness is brought to it is particularly relevant. Now, there's different ways to do lineups. They don't all have to be like you see them in the movies, right? The, the people going into a room and standing up and someone hiding behind a glass and trying to identify them. That's one way of doing it. That would, you know, we'd call that a live lineup. But the other way is a photo array, right? So a photo array is the term used for photographic lineups. They are more common, actually, than live lineups because they, they take less time, right? They're less time-consuming to construct. They are easy to move, so you can go to where the witnesses are. You can take your lineups with you, so to speak. The suspect does not have a right to counsel, so, uh, you know, like they do for live lineups. Suspect behavior is not a factor, so you don't have to worry about body language influencing the way somebody's seeing things. And uh, that can have a major influence on identification, and finally, the photo array actually creates less anxiety for the witnesses because they're not face-to-face -face with uh, a suspect or even, you know, the, the possible culprit. Now, there are several ways that one could set up a lineup, right? So lineup procedures can vary depending on the circumstance and the situation. A simultaneous lineup, for example, uh, is a procedure where uh, that presents all lineup members at one time to the witness, and it encourages the witness to make a relative judgment about who the culprit is. A sequential lineup would involve presenting the lineup members serially to the witness, and studies have found that sequential procedures reduce the likelihood that a witness can make a relative judgment. Right? Witnesses are more likely to make an absolute judgment in those circumstances. Then you might have a show-up, an identification procedure that shows one person to the witness, the suspect. And the witness is asked whether the person is the culprit. The problem with this method, though, is that the witness is aware of whom the police suspect, may, and that may increase the likelihood of making an identification that may be false. There's mixed uh, data from the studies about these different lineup types. Some studies have shown that witnesses are more cautious with their decision-making when presented with a show-up rather than a lineup, And as a result, though, they tend to err on making a rejection more often rather than an identification.
However, other studies have contradicted that finding and have indicated that show-ups tend to be suggestive. This might have something to do with that first problem I identified, which is that the witness is responding in some ways, even subconsciously, to who they believe the police already think is the suspect, uh, already you know who they already suspect, which might indicate to them that this must most likely be the culprit, which obviously skews your lineup. And finally, the walk-by, right? So the identification occurs in a sort of natural environment. The police take the witness to a public location where the suspect is known to be or might likely uh, be found. And once the police see the suspect um, in view, the witness just gets asked whether he or she sees the culprit in the area. The thinking on that one is obviously that it lowers the pressure. The person in the lineup, so to speak, the walk-by, is not... Uh, does not realize a witness is there trying to identify them. And because there are other people in the vicinity, it sort of asks for the witness to look for. And you probably get a better uh, result when they say, well, that person is the person I, you know, I, I witnessed. And so it gives you a little bit more uh, comfort, if you will, in knowing that it wasn't a suggestion of a person put in front of them that they identified. Now, lineup bias is a thing, and biased lineups suggest, uh, you know, who the police suspect and thereby who the witness should identify. Uh, They have been found to increase false positives. So you have foil bias, right? The suspect is the only person in the whole lineup who matches the actual description of the culprit. Or you could have a clothing bias. The suspect is the only lineup member wearing similar clothing to that uh, that was allegedly worn by the culprit. Or you could even have instruction bias, where the police fail to mention to the witness that the culprit may not be present. Rather, the police may imply that the culprit is present, which almost psychologically influences somebody to pick someone in the lineup. The ability to match a surveillance video to a culprit can be challenging due to a number of factors such as lighting, angle view, and or disguise. And that's one of the reasons why we see it a lot in the movies, but not often in real actual application. Voice identification is another one you see in the movies all the time, but voice identification also presents a great deal of challenges. Whispering or muffling, making it harder to identify, uh, are definitely complicating factors. And participants tend to be more accurate when the speaker has a familiar versus a different accent. And this is not very different from the other phenomena, which is cross-racial identification. Now, the cross-race effect, also known as the other race effect, is the phenomenon of witnesses remembering faces of people of their own race with greater accuracy than they remember faces of people from other races. Studies have found that own race faces produced higher correct identifications and lower false positives than other race faces. So this might speak to that... uh, cross-racial identification challenge that people joke about in everyday speak when you mention somebody from a different race um, or racial background and you mention that you know you can't tell them apart because they all look the same that is obviously an inherently prejudiced comment but it is rooted in a certain amount of fact which is that we are generally better at identifying those that are more similar to us than those that are different Now, the last one I want to talk about is weapon focus. So, the term used to describe this phenomena of a witness's attention being focused on the culprit's weapon rather than on the culprit. Uh, 
The witness will remember less about the crime and the culprit when a weapon is present than when there is no weapon present. An easier way to think about this is that it is a stimulus that produces a high stress reaction. And whenever that happens, a person naturally focuses in on what they perceive to be the threat. In this case, the weapon. So the staring at the weapon, the thing that's producing the fear response, is likely to prevent actually taking in the rest of the environment. It's not uncommon that somebody can describe a gun or a knife and fail to be able to describe the person holding it. That's because the level of fear caused when a weapon is in front of you can change your assessment and your reading of the situation around you. The subject of eyewitness testimony and their veracity, their accuracy, uh, it's, it's a hard topic because the academic literature, the research, does not always align well with public perception, which is often the case. Eyewitness studies are counterintuitive and they contradict the common sense beliefs of those in the community, right? So surveys regarding beliefs uh, by the public about eyewitness testimony found that the public makes many uh, fundamental errors, right? So for one thing, they have a tendency to overestimate the accuracy of identifications. Not understanding the influence of situational factors on the accuracy of identifications. That's another common misunderstanding. Not being aware of system uh, variables that may lead to increases or decreases in identification accuracy. In many cases involving DNA exoneration, the primary evidence used to convict previously was actually eyewitness identification. So in that regard, eyewitness testimony has contributed in some ways to wrongful convictions and in the absence of DNA exoner exoneration, we would never have known. Now, this is primarily one of those reasons why eyewitness testimony is considered to be one of the best types of evidence. It is highly believable. And the science behind and the psychology behind whether or not a memory is accurate and recall is accurate is often misunderstood which is why we take the time to sort of look at those factors and have an informed perspective on them. When you look at Canadian guidelines, law professor Neil Brooks prepared uh, Canada's guidelines for pre-trial eyewitness procedures in the early 1980s. And Canadian police have not followed all of the published guidelines for a variety of reasons. Uh, but just so you have a quick reference, here are some of the things that are included in the guidelines, right? So the photo lineup procedure with the witness should be videotaped or audio taped. And from the point the officer greets the witness to the completion of the interview, it should all be recorded. Officers should inform witnesses that it is just as important to clear innocent suspects as it is to identify guilty suspects. The photo lineup should be presented sequentially rather than all at the same time. And the officer, officer should never discuss a witness identification decision with the witness, right? All of those, those are just some of the many guidelines. The, the point we're making is that you have to really be careful because in the manner in which you conduct the interview, in the manner in which you uh, conduct the lineup, you can legitimately, without meaning to, skew the results. And that can lead to major problems. So that brings us to the end of this episode. You've been listening to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This, once again, was our Forensic Psychology series. 
and we will come back with the next episode that will explore more of this fascinating subject. Until then, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for new episodes. Thank you.